0: What's up, Facebook? How
1: are y'all doing this evening? There's this video that's been making the rounds online, recorded by a visiting nurse who's just returned home from working in a COVID ward in El Paso, Texas.
0: Yeah, I have been wearing this in ninety-five mask. I um even had to sleep in it last
1: night. I had to sleep in this mask all night. She's broadcasting from a corner of her house trying to maintain some kind of distance from her kids. Watching feels like being inside a confessional. The nurse whispers. She gets teary. She actually says she spent the first hour of her six-hour drive home sobbing. This
0: last assignment was horrific for me. Uh, I have been debating on whether or not to even talk about it.
1: And then... For nearly an hour, she unloads just about everything she saw in El Paso. She talks about a room full of COVID patients that doctors refused to enter. She says it was called the pit.
0: One night we had 10 cold blues in one, night, in one 12-hour shift. I don't think
1: none of them made it. That night when so many patients died, she says the morgue filled up which is when someone rolled a dead body into the ICU. So we got to do our work,
0: take care of our patients, and constantly look over at a body bag in the bed. Y'all, it was torture. That's the only way I could describe it. It's torture for me to sit there and see those doors open and a bed come in, and in my head, I'm like, oh, what kind of patient they bring us now? Oh, well, we don't have anywhere else to store the bodies because the morgue is full. Insane. Insane. This is the only word I can use to describe it. Just insane.
1: This story is so awful. It's almost hard to believe.
0: So I called up someone who could tell me whether I should. I would say that, generally speaking, what she's describing is, is, is what's happening in, in uh, our hospitals. I think uh, the hospital officials might take exception to a, a couple of the specifics that, that she pointed out. But the one thing you hear from healthcare workers is just uh, this despondency.
1: Bob Moore founded the journalism website El Paso Matters. He's watched as COVID consumes his hometown. It's the details that really get to him. If you have read anything about El Paso lately, you've heard about them. The 10 mobile morgues the city's brought to store bodies in. The inmates who get paid 2 bucks an hour to move those bodies. A funeral home that started storing the dead in one of its chapels.
0: There's no way to make this Picture pretty right. It's it's El Paso's been experiencing a catastrophe for about four weeks now, uh, and and it's just it, it's snowballing. But like that nurse, it's as
1: if Bob has to talk, like he's getting the panic out of his system by speaking it out loud.
0: The stress that we have put on our healthcare systems and our healthcare workers uh, it is it is very problematic, and and. We're going to be paying the price for that, uh, and they're going to be paying the price for that for, for years after this pandemic is over.
1: It's funny. When I listen to you, I can hear that you're really alarmed, but also that you're kind of reporting through it, like just trying to, like, get the facts out there as a journalist, you know, dispassionately so that people understand what's happening.
0: I'm not dispassionate about this at all. This, this, is, this is horrifying, uh, and, and uh, there are policy failures uh, at federal, state, and local levels that led to this. This did not have to happen, uh, and I'm not going to be dispassionate about that."
1: Today on the show, as Texas surpasses one million COVID cases, the collision of politics and public health in El Paso reveals why this third wave of infection feels so devastating and so devastatingly predictable. I'm Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next. Stick with us. This episode is brought to you by SAP. First, the bad news. SAP Business AI will not help you generate cubist versions of your family's holiday photos. about the coronavirus doesn't mince a lot of words. It reads, COVID-19 will bring enormous suffering and sorrow to El Paso in the coming weeks. Through his reporting, you can feel Bob trying to make the loss his community is living through understandable, even though it's not, really. He writes that over the last two weeks, El Paso has averaged more than 23 COVID deaths a day. That's the same number of people murdered last year, in the El Paso Walmart shooting, day after day.
0: For two weeks now, we've uh, experienced a human loss equivalent to what happened on our darkest day. And, uh, and, and I don't mean to compare the two events because they are, they are quite different, but, but the human toll that we're seeing right now is, is just unimaginable in many senses. So I'm trying to give it a scale that, that people may be able to, to comprehend. You know, this is a community that has been through so much in in the last few years. You know, family separation started here. The uh, migrant crisis, really, the humanitarian crisis in 2018 and 2019 played out more in El Paso than any place else. Then we had uh, the terror attack from a white supremacist um, last August 3rd and now COVID. And I I think in, in many ways... El Paso long ago reached a a breaking point with this, you know, crisis after crisis after crisis.
1: Hmm. Yeah, I mean, you did note that infection rates are going down this week, but even when you did that, you used this language where you said COVID's like a wildfire. Essentially, the reason why the infection rates are going down, it might be because there are just so many El Pasoans who've already been affected, and so a fire without fuel will begin to burn out.
0: Yeah, I've used the wildfire analogy, uh, several times, uh, and, and basically there are two ways to fight a wildfire. Uh, one is to try to contain it and then extinguish it. Uh, the the other is to just let it burn until it consumes all the available fuel. El Paso has used that second track, um, more so than the first, uh, there have been very limited efforts, uh, We've just seen this, this wildfire spread to, to the point where in a community of 840,000 people, 50,000 of them have been infected with COVID-19 in the last six weeks. And, and so we, we I think we've become something of unwitting guinea pigs in an experiment on herd immunity and the price we're going to pay for that. We've already lost... Uh, By my best estimates, about 1,100 people um, were going to lose another 1,000 or more between now and Christmas.
1: When Bob says COVID's moved through his community like wildfire, part of what he means is that the conditions in El Paso were just right for an intense burn. People in El Paso are more than twice as likely to be uninsured as the average American, and undertreated underlying conditions make COVID much more deadly. Many El Pasoans work in industries that don't even offer health care, not to mention paid time off.
0: We are a low-income, working-class community. Uh, 30% of all of our private sector jobs are in retail or hospitality industries. Those people have to go to work. They, they can't stay home. Uh, and, you know, if they lose their job, there's not that extra relief that was there for people Uh, in in the springtime. So the virus has exposed a lot of problems uh, uh, or amplified a lot of problems. Uh, And one of the things that's clearly amplifying here is the way we've structured our economy in El Paso, where we're so reliant on these uh, low-wage, low-skilled jobs. You mentioned
1: how part of what potentially made El Paso so vulnerable was a reliance on the service industry. What are the other things that you see out there that allowed the coronavirus to flourish in your community?
0: There's a couple things that come to mind. Probably from a policy standpoint, uh, was a a decision that was made by the city leadership in May to stop enforcing public health orders uh, and instead uh, uh, offer what they call education. And so you know, they don't take that approach with, you know, traffic safety. We don't just say, oh, you know, when we see somebody speeding, we're just going to kind of educate them on why they shouldn't speed. No, we give them a ticket because we know that that enforcement helps uh, helps affect behavioral change. But I, I think because a lot of the business community was fearful that uh, we'd, they'd be facing some draconian crackdown, the city just eased up. And Uh, that was the match that lit this fire. Uh, They've begun more enforcement now, uh, but but it's too late.
1: While the community may have been primed for an outbreak, Bob says it's the politicians who have stood around and watched this wildfire burn. That's partially because of a quirk in Texas state administration, where mayors oversee cities, but county judges oversee counties, and governors oversee them all. And this mishmash creates room for confusion. In El Paso, the county judge, which is an executive position, he's technically above the mayor, is a Democrat. And as COVID spread this fall, he tried to shut down businesses. But the mayor of El Paso, a Republican, he resisted. I think your mayor, Dee Margot, is in this interesting position. Because at the beginning of all this, my understanding is that he was in favor of masks, but then you could see him shifting his positioning. And then when the county judge got involved a little bit earlier this year and tried to have more of a lockdown in El Paso, he resisted it. Can you tell the story of this push and pull?
0: Yeah, so so the mayor actually imposed lockdown orders uh, very early in, in the pandemic uh, and supported uh, the governor's measures in uh, in March and April. Uh, to sort of close off the economy to try to slow the spread. And it's worth noting that, by and large, that worked. Uh, It really helped contain the spread here. Uh, But as we went along, the uh, Republican leadership in the state made it really clear uh, that we weren't going to do any more lockdowns.
1: The way the Republican leadership did this was through an executive order issued by the governor, It essentially said, you can't shut down certain places of business or churches. So as infections began to mount in El Paso this fall, local leaders' hands were tied. Even that county judge,
0: who in an emergency, has very explicit powers. And so uh, the county judge uh, at the end of October, his name's Ricardo Samaniego, just because he was so concerned about what we were seeing in rising caseloads, decided to basically defy the governor and issue uh, a lockdown order. Um, And the city uh, initially said it would not enforce the order. Um, Then after a a week or so uh, a a district judge ruled that the county judge's order was legal. The city then said, okay, we'll start enforcing it, which they did for a couple of days. And then uh, an appellate court basically said the trial judge was in error um, and uh, uh, told him to issue a temporary restraining order blocking the order. And at that point, uh, kind of judge Samaniego just said, okay, I'm not going to press this any further and drop the appeals, but you had, you know, a pass ones caught in this mass confusion, which has been very frequent here, like not knowing which side was up and what they're supposed to do. Are they supposed to go to work tomorrow or are they not? Uh, am I supposed to open my business tomorrow or am I not? Uh, uh and so there's just this mass confusion, that, that I think undermined a lot of the effectiveness. But, but as you mentioned earlier, we did this week for the first time begin to see our infection rate go down. I think one of the factors behind that was the stay-at-home order that the county judge issued. Even though it was not universally enforced, uh, I think that was a bit of a firebreak that got uh, put out there and, and helps. More What
1: Next after a break. I mentioned your mayor, who's a Republican, DeMargo, because he's been put in a really difficult position. I think I think like a lot of mayors around the country having to manage through this crisis. And I feel like he keeps trying to explain that to people. Like he held a press conference on Thursday or Friday last week where he actually read letters he'd gotten from people in the business community saying, please don't shut us down, because if you shut us down, we may not be able to reopen. We're going to have all these other people out of work, our employees.
0: This is from a small business owner I received today. says, the most common criticism small small business owners are currently receiving is that we are selfish in putting profits over people in our desire to avoid shutdowns. What many do not understand is that a small business is not normally a single individual massively profiting and tucking tucking away money for themselves. Small businesses support families, not just the owner's families, but each member of their staff represents another family that is counting on them for survival. According to Forbes...
1: I wonder what you thought about
0: that. The, the message about business is an important message to get out, but here's where all of this begins to break down. Uh, It's not the shutdown that's impacting businesses. It's the virus. Uh, You cannot have 1,200 to 1,800 cases a day uh, uh, coming up and expect your business community to flourish. People have begun altering their behavior. They don't dine in in restaurants. They don't shop as much as they once did. They're shopping on Amazon instead of going to to, to local stores. So uh, in September, we began to see our unemployment numbers go back up again. Um, The October numbers aren't out yet, but I'm sure that uh, they will have gone back up, too. And there weren't shutdowns in September or october. so there's, there's this false choice that's been put out there that you know we can either choose a healthy economy or you know a healthy population. Uh, uh, and that it's a false choice because until we get the virus under control, we're not going to have a, a a healthy economy. And you know, back in the spring when we went through this, uh, there was at least the, the CARES Act funding. Uh, and other steps that Congress had taken to provide some relief for both businesses and workers. But now that relief isn't here. And so all of these national policy failures really begin to show up in a place like El Paso. So people have to go to work. In some cases, they have to go to work even when they know they're sick. Businesses have to keep their doors open um, uh, because even you know, 25% of their revenue is 25% more than, than if they shut down. So we, we've created kind of a, a health catastrophe and an economic catastrophe at the same time. We're somehow trying to pretend that they're different.
1: Hmm. I'm wondering if by some turn of events, some major stimulus did come through from Washington, something that paid people to stay home, would it shift the conversation in El Paso, do you think?
0: I think it would shift the conversation everywhere uh, uh, b- because it makes it makes it a little bit more more tolerable. Now, of course, you'd have to have uh, stimulus efforts that that help both workers and businesses.
1: Yeah, I mean, we talked a little bit about how the infection rate is going down in El Paso. Does that give you hope about where things are headed over the next few weeks and months, or are there things that you think mean this could get worse?
0: It gives me some hope heading into the new year uh, if we can if we can sustain this. But I, I, I am incredibly concerned about Thanksgiving that just as we're starting to tamp out some of this wildfire, that we basically go get jugs of kerosene and throw it on the fire uh, with these these family gatherings.
1: I get the sense that you have a calendar and you see a holiday coming and you just get this sense of dread
0: the doctors do i'll tell you that and so you know there's two big days circled on their calendars right now thanksgiving and then christmas uh you know at least fourth of july to labor day we had a couple of months you know here you've got the the, these big family gathering holidays probably the biggest family gathering holidays you know coming within four weeks of each other uh it's it it is, it is terrifying. You know, the government's not coming to save us. There is no cavalry that's coming to save El Paso. We have to save ourselves. And I think you're seeing more and more um, uh, healthcare officials and frontline healthcare workers trying to get that message out that, that a lot of things we take for granted just aren't true right now because the healthcare system has been overwhelmed. My, my team at El Paso Matters, uh, we we're really trying to talk with healthcare workers, talk with families who, who suffered losses, really try to, to make clear the, the toll of this. And, and one of the things that really got to me, my, my father was uh, a career Air Force NCO. A lot of my family served in the military. Uh, the day before Veterans Day, uh, Fort Bliss National Cemetery, which is the resting spot for 50,000 veterans. Uh, announced that for the immediate future they could no longer do committal services or provide uh, honors, uh, military honors to, to veterans who died because it's just too dangerous to send these crews out to, to staff these, these funerals. And so you know these are uh, people who, who serve their country, and the last debt we owe them is to play taps at their funeral and give their family a flag, and we can't do that right now um, because of of this virus. Uh, and so, it just we, people need to understand what you know, 1,100 deaths mean, or what 50,000 cases mean. And it's it's disrupted um, uh, so much of how we grieve uh, and so much of how we mourn. Uh, and I think uh, it creates this sense of of immense loss for people, even more so than just losing a loved one.
1: Bob Moore, thank you so much for joining me.
0: Yep, thank you very much.
1: Bob Moore is the CEO of El Paso Matters. And that's the show. Before we go, though, I've got a quick favor to ask. All of us here have COVID and the holidays on our minds, and I've got a feeling you do too. So we wanted to open up our listener line again and ask you guys how you are celebrating this year. Are you traveling for Thanksgiving? Are you skipping Thanksgiving altogether? Or have you found some new way to celebrate that you really want to share with the rest of us? Whatever your story, we want to hear it. So give us a call. 202-888-2588. That's 202-888-2588. What Next is produced by Daniel Hewitt, Mary Wilson, Franny Kelly, and Elena Schwartz. Every day we get a little help from Allison Benedict and Alicia Montgomery. And I'm Mary Harris. I will catch you back here tomorrow.